Welcome to Splunk Talk. This is Hal. I'm here with Birch, and we are recording a podcast starting right now. This is episode two. No, it's not episode two. This is season two, episode eight, and we're joined today by guest Chris Gales. So before we get into that, hey, Birch, uh, what have you been up to lately? Um, you know, one thing I am uh, from a technology, uh, someone who's worked in technology for a while, I, I think I've hit... A, a really painful emotional turn with all of my tech books. So anyone who's a, a frequent watcher of our, our video cast will know that I have big bookshelves behind me. And I, I think over the last few days, I've come to accept that I'm probably not, I haven't opened those books in like five years and I probably mm-hmm. won't be anymore. And mm-hmm. maybe it's time for, um, doing something with them and freeing up the space and getting rid of clutter. But it's, um, I mean, they can be decorative. That can be the point of them. Yeah. So it can be, I saw, you know, with everyone working from home these days, I saw a, uh, no, I hadn't heard. Yeah. A a news report. Well, cause we work from home anyway. Um, (laughs) a news reporter, uh, they didn't acknowledge it, but they did in one of the comedy show, late night comedy shows. She had all the books organized, but by color. And it was like max OCD. <laughs> and, um, they were mocking her on a, you know, a late night show. And I saw it and I was like, I want to do that. I want my books organized by color. Okay. So I mean, if I it's decorative, maybe like that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's a um, a difficult point for a technologist to shed the books mm-hmm. uh, of the technologies, but it, it's weird, right? It's it's they're not like mm-hmm. storybooks that are timeless. Like these, literally, like Java three is not going to help me today. <laughs> no, this is well. I have um, a, a utilitarian approach to the books that are on my desk, in that um, one of them. Actually, both of them are books that friends of mine had written, and they are holding up my right-hand side monitor. They really are your right-hand mom. Yeah. So that's what – I mean, I have another book on my desk that I can't see from here, and then I have a small selection, not not your your full full stack there, uh, not in this room. Some technical books scattered around, but yeah, I've not used them, looked at them know they exist in many, many years. Yeah. So. Can I just point out, I, and this, it seems like it was planned, but it's not. Mm-hmm. But Chris Gales, mm-hmm. who is coming on in a moment, mm-hmm. is the leader of our entire product documentation, I as guess. well as the docs books that we have right. published that he'll talk right. about. With you so far. Mm-hmm. I am just really tickled that we're talking about books before he gets here. But technically, we're bashing books. <laughs> Better than burning them. Yeah, I mean, what if we were actually literally burning books when he shows up? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. Like, he might know the answer to this question. But, like, what do I do with these books? Because I don't, I don't like throwing things away. I always like donating them. Or, I mean, I can recycle the paper, but I... Yeah. Well, I mean, nobody's they they have a they have a, a shelf life, and then they're kind of of no value whatsoever, distinct from fiction, right? Yeah. It, These like tech books, you know. Once if the it's tech no is value gone, to me, mm-hmm. then it's probably no value to someone else too. I mean, you can give it to Goodwill, but like, what are they going to do with it? You know. I, you know what I always picture is, um, I don't. I always argue with myself, and I go, "Don't cut yourself short." What if someone in film class is trying to do a piece about college in the 1990s? They would need those books. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there I may go, be some exceptions. That's really few and far between. Yeah. Well, actually, my um, my son used to work for a local charity uh, called Books for Africa. And it was actually um, headed by um, a, a friend of ours. And, you know, he got books 
you know, for free that were donated and then uh, raised the money to keep the, the ship afloat there. Uh, but then you put them on a container ship and send them to Africa. Wow. So. And, Wait, yeah, so they, you used the pun. You accidentally made a pun then when saying keep the I? ship afloat. Kind of. Yeah, that was an accident. Yeah, that was beautiful. Thanks. So we're beautifully accidentally talking about books before we have Chris. And What's you beautifully yeah. talked about ships. So let's sail on. Uh, what's been going on with you? Um, well, as you can see by my background, I am kind of, um, I, I want to be outside more than I am. That's, that's basically uh, what's going on there. That is actually a, um, a short little looping video of um, just off my back porch. I mean, that's just the oh, woods nice. behind my house. So it doesn't take me long to get there at all, which is nice. Um, I was hoping that I, it's always fun when you can have a video of like, you know, a cool place or whatever. But when it's like someplace, you know, and you have been and you can, when seeing it, feel it. You, you yeah. remember how the air tastes and smells and how windy or not windy it is. Yeah. In this case, it was kind of windy. So yeah. Thinking about being outside. Do you think, um, and, and I'm in it, I'm kind of an introvert. So I actually spent a lot of time in, indoors already. Yeah. Do you think, um, that by having that there, it will desensitize you to your backyard? Mm, nah, I got a lot of backyard. Nice. I mean, it's not, you know, only my part is, you know, the, the quarter acre behind my house or whatever. But, um, you know, behind that is woods. So I got a lot of backyard. Yeah. So it should work out. The trees look very Um, But yeah, let's, uh, you know, get into like slightly more Splunk related talk as far as, far as things that we have been up to. Um, what about you? Um, so I've started to get involved with our DSP product, our uh, distributed uh, stream, stream processor. processor. Yes. Yeah. We have a DFS as well, and they both have same similar acronyms and came out around the same time, mm-hmm. or at least like within internally, we had been working on them around the same time. So I always mix them up and have to think about which one is which. But one stream processing and the other is federated search. Yeah. But I still get mixed up on the letters. Yep. But anyway, I um, I started to uh, to get involved there just in the last last few weeks. So I've only gotten so far as installing it uh, this week. I'm hoping to to play with it and really enjoy you know the the fruits of its software. Mm-hmm. Me too. Actually, um, the I have slots on my calendar that I put there for training, and they I don't know about you if you have this problem, but they keep getting overlaid by other things. So I will save this time. Oh yeah, I'm totally going to work on my DSP training, uh, and then it, it evaporates. You know, it's just like a, just poof, just evaporates. Yeah. But I too am eager to get into that more. Uh, I haven't done a single thing hands-on with it, other than just touching some streams a little bit. But uh, looking forward to doing a lot more. We have a visitor. <gasps> Chris hey, Nails is here. Hey, hey, Chris, yeah. how's it going? Good. See ya. How y'all doing? A long time. Indeed. Um, doing all right. So, so uh, j- before you joined, we were we were accidentally talking about books, uh, and then realized that we have the lead of literature at the company joining. <laughs> That's <laughs> really nice. You you have books. I'm looking right at them. Yeah. I was talking about getting rid of them. That was the sad part. <laughs> we predicted you might be upset by that. <laughs> Oh, I no. suggested maybe we should be literally burning them when you came on uh-huh. to see what, you know, kind of a, just for effect. I mean, I don't know that you should do that indoors though, Birch. No, I, I think if, if I'm going to do the horrible deed of burning a book, I should have to breathe in all of its, all of its poison, all of the poison <laughs> of my action. There I would go. not, I would not uh, burn books. I would not do that. I would not. There, so there are, be- there are better ways to get rid of them. Anyway, yes, yeah. there are. So, Chris, um, having not been on this podcast before, we should probably get a little bit of an introduction to you from you. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, sure. So, I'm the senior director for documentation at Splunk. I manage 
the doc team. Uh, we produce all of the uh, customer-facing documentation on docs.splunk.com and dev.splunk.com. We do some internal docs work as well. I've been at the company for almost nine years. Um, I've been in the tech docs field for over 20 years. I did a stint as a product manager somewhere in the middle there for a while. Uh, but most of my career has been in information development and delivery. What? So, yeah, go ahead. No, you go. Okay. No, you go. No, you go. Okay, you go. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think I think there's like there's two there's two parts to you that I or three parts to you that I'd love to unpack. There's the how did you get here? You know, what happened? What what was you know BS before Splunk? Um, Telling, uh, telling us about, you know, your time here, what, what you inherited or didn't inherit, um, how that, that's grown, any interesting experiences. But um, it's always fun to also cap it off with like, okay, well, you know, where do we, where do we see our future in a way that we can talk about uh, legally <laughs> without making, you know, unreleased claims or, or anything like that. And uh, I see Deadpool has now joined us for anyone on the video feed, also reading a book. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, I guess just going in chronological order, um, what did you do? What did you do at, at college? Was it related? And and what kind of notable experiences did you have before coming to Splunk that um, that you feel confident helped inspire? You know how how things have shaped up here for you and and influenced you. Sure. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, my my education is really all in literature and writing. It's not technology oriented at all. Uh, I've always been a technology aficionado way back to the the very first days of personal computing. Um, I really got in the phrase personal sorry? computing, as noted by the phrase personal computing. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, when 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 I was in middle school, there was. There was some kind of computer system that, uh, you know, was like client server terminal. Um, anyway, yeah, personal computing, right? Uh, so I got into tech writing uh, while I was in grad school, actually. I was working for a, a historical archive project at UC Berkeley. And they were uh, they were producing a big microfilm edition of, of Emma Goldman's papers and I was, uh, I guess I was a research assistant there and it was run by a, a bunch of uh, historians and archivists and they, they had a database of all, the, all the, the, the records for all the documents, thousands and thousands and thousands of documents. And uh, people kind of knew how to use the database, but not so much. And there was one other uh, employee there who actually did, like he was the database guy. Um, but uh, he was, uh, you know, like me, he was part-time and our schedules didn't always overlap. So uh, he taught me, taught me how to use the database. He, uh, that was really my first, my first formal education in, in any, uh, any technology still in use today. <laughs> so, you know, I, I learned, I learned SQL and, and a bunch of things about how that, how the database was running. And then, um, I, I wrote things up for the rest of the people uh, so they could do a better job using it. And that was really, that was my first informal tech writing experience. And then when I was leaving grad school um, and I knew I didn't want to continue in the, uh, in the academy as an academic profession, uh, I, I remember doing this work and enjoying this work. And I convinced someone to, uh, to hire me as a tech writer. And that's, that's where I started. So going back to the database, um, it's, I find it really intriguing because the way th there's the words you said to describe the story, but there's like an undercurrent um, or, or, or like an, uh, there's like a sub story, which is I'm hearing that you probably have a natural affinity or, or propensity for technology and in my mind, I have to believe that if you weren't into it, 
like inherently into it. Well, I mean, technical writing is not all forms of writing. There's a lot of other types of writing, fiction oh, and, and nonfiction yeah. alike. Well, I guess where I'm going with this in an unnecessarily long-winded way is like, I've, I feel like I've come across this with, with um, people that I often think are in like creative realms. So there's like um, friends who are like musicians. Some of them are like very, very artistic mind. Like vast majority of my friends that are musicians are very artistic mind. And a lot of the people that I know outside of Splunk that are writers are very artistic writers. But every now and then I come across these logical uh, writers and logical musicians and people who like they're a musician, but they're also like a math genius or they're a, a writer who has this passion for the the logic of the technology and, and really sinks into that. And so it's just a cool expression how like it, it defies my own expectations based on my own experiences. So let me turn that into a question. People. Yeah, that I think might make sense based on what you just said. So if you can make sense of any of that, go ahead. <laughs> so, Chris, what type of people go into technical writing and how do you build a team um, that works? Uh, yeah, one of the really cool things about tech writing as a profession, I think, is that people come from from all kinds of backgrounds. And uh, there are many paths to success in this profession. So... Uh, and on the Splunk Doc team, if I think about about the group there, we have people who you know have humanities backgrounds like me, whether it's it's literature or history. Uh, we have people whose degrees are in cognitive science and journalism and astronomy and computer science, and we've had a musicologist on the team. We've had, uh, we have people who've actually gone through technical writing programs and, and, and studies that formally in school as, as their major. Uh, we have uh, applied statistics major on the team. So uh, we have people who, uh, who studied and, and journalism and were journalists. So there, there's all kinds of, all kinds of things that, that you could s study to, um, to learn how to digest a diverse set of information and figure out how to organize it and convey it to an audience as transparently as possible. Uh, and, and we see that reflected in the team. So when I'm looking for people to, to join the team, I'm not hung up on a particular degree mm. or uh, necessarily a, a certain narrow set of domain expertise. What I'm really looking for is kind of the, the investigative mindset and the audience awareness, the ability to collaborate with a, a wide variety of, of cross-functional peers, and then, and then the, the evidence that people can, can combine all this disparate information in, into something that will make sense that people can actually use. So at some point, we should probably bring up that book thing. I was okay. thinking maybe, you know, I had some other th directions we should go, but I wanted to set this out, you know, to, to, to be the backdrop here. So um, I, I know that you've got a new edition of a, of a book out and, and sadly, oh, like, did, did you mean this book? <laughs> oh, someone, the product someone can prepare docs. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, I mean, I want to hear about it and, but I want to hear about, what led to that? Um, and I don't, maybe that's part of the book. I've not, I've, I've not read the book yet. So, you know, tell me like why the book and you know, about, about the project, not the second edition necessarily, just, you know, sure, how we started. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that goes back a couple of years. Um, the first edition came out in December, 2017, I guess. And uh, leading up to that, I think there were a few things that we had been talking about within the team, uh, whether it was how do we really want to fit our docs process into agile development. Uh, that was one thing. Uh, another one was we were writing a set of uh, audience definitions for ourselves. Like who, who are the audiences that, 
that we are writing Splunk docs for so that we could record a, a set of assumptions about them, similar to persona development, although I think there, there's some, some key differences there. And in the process of having these discussions, we're, we're looking around at conference presentations and industry literature and if there are any other books or articles. And we, we kept running into basically gaps um, in, in what had been published or what was available where either the published material didn't really match the experience we were having and the questions we were asking, or there really wasn't anything that we could find in, in several surprising areas. So uh, we were doing a, like a products-wide hack week, and leading up to that, I basically pitched to the team. Uh, like, I mean, a hackathon is when the engineers get together and write code. What does the doc team do? Uh, well, sometimes we work on, on, you know, project related things with the sure. engineers, but in this case, it's like, but. Hey team, um, I bet we can write a book in a week. Wow. And, uh, well, you know, enough people with, with <laughs> keyboards, right? Um, so, uh, so we, we brainstormed a list of what these subjects were. And then people basically picked one and the goal was get to the messy rough draft in a week. And like at the end of the week, let's just have the messy rough draft of, the, of your chapter, whichever thing you picked. Did you pick uh, the topics like at the start of the hack week? Yeah, exa exactly. So, so prior to hack week, we did a brainstorming. Right. Prior to hack week, we did brainstorming as a team about what the list of subjects would be, what the chapters were. People signed up for them and then... Hack Week was was writing week for that. And indeed, we came out at the end of Hack Week with a very messy rough draft um, that would become the book. And then we did, then we paired people up and did like peer reviews and revisions and kind of, you know, combed over it for, for a few months and, and made some improvements. And that's really where the book came from. So um, it was the, the goal first... to publish it initially or did that come yes. later? Yeah, the, the goal was always to publish it, make it available to the profession. Um, and I mean, it's, it's a book that a lot of tech writers have used, but it's not just for tech writers. I, I think we I say in, in, the, in the preface, like if, if, you, if you are a tech writer, you work with tech writers, if you're in any part of a product development group, there's something in this book for you. So it's, uh, it's the chapters for the most part are pretty short. There's no sequence. You don't have to read them in sequence, basically mm -hmm. a, a series of, of short articles um, that really, in which we were really trying to capture like, what our practical experience was writing documentation in a product development team. Okay. So how many co-authors were there? In the first edition, I think 22 people wrote the first edition. Mm -hmm. uh, now, did yeah. everybody, was it set up so that everyone had their own voice or did you actually edit it to have a consistent voice? Uh, I didn't edit it strongly for a consistent voice. I'm perfectly okay with it, the book sounding like different people oh, wrote no, it. I'm, yeah, because there's different wrong people wrote it. You see, yeah. uh, see that with like a collection of short stories, for example. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. that's a really impressive thing because so um, I, I read it like a year and a half ago, maybe. Uh, and funny, funny um, example of my personality. Chris kept saying, "You don't have to read it in order. Just pick out the relevant parts." And so, what did I do? I read it read front it to back. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, uh, it's a great read either way. I mean, you have to admit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, no, it was. I mean, I liked it. But back to the, the voice thing, um, it felt very consistent from at least from a layman's perspective. It felt like a consistent voice. And I guess I always attributed that to the fact that even in writing, our Splunk docs, what, what everyone is probably already well-versed in how to write in the, in the same style. As you guys have a style guide? We do. There's so. a Splunk style guide that we use. We actually we published that as well just this past December um, for, the, for the tech writing community. So that, that's available on the doc site uh, as well. So I have a question. What do you think, if anything, that Splunk does differently um, about documentation? Is there anything that, that that either you do on purpose or that, that kind of emerged as mm -hmm. that might be unique to our culture? 
I think the, oh, so the first thing that comes to mind is our relationship with our customer community. And this, this goes all the way back to the earliest days. This, this predates me, Birch, in, in your initial questions, you were asking like, well, what did I inherit uh, when yeah, I joined? No. So when I, when I joined the company, uh, I'm not the first manager of the doc team at the company. Um, which you <laughs> The know. only one that counts though. Yeah. No, really, that's not, that's really not true. So Rachel, there, there were what, maybe 300 people or something we joined somewhere around there? Uh, probably, yeah. So Rachel Perkins preceded me okay. uh, oh, and really wow. established the doc team at Splunk. And I had no idea. Yeah, she has yeah, come up this. quite a bit in this podcast. Yeah, right. So she did a terrific job. Uh, when I joined the company, she was uh, moving into a different role, more community focused than doc focused. But what she instilled really early, or from the get-go really, was um, uh, like talking to our customers, responding to doc feedback, really being uh, not just open, but permeable with our customer community. And I've tried to carry that through and expand that and just make sure that that's really one of our, our core principles on the doc team. And I think... Uh, it really does set us apart. Um, I've talked to a lot of other managers for a lot of other doc teams around the industry, various industries actually, and um, they they really, for the most part, they really aspire to have the level of customer engagement that Splunk enjoys. Um, so, I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the doc's feedback, mm-hmm. and I don't know. I've never gone and like measured, you know, company to company to company. But but one thing that was unique, at least when I joined the company, was that every single, you know, the docs are a wiki and everything has a feedback page at the bottom of it. And that um, facilitates the collaboration with the community. And that was very intentional, I know. Um, and I would like to, I mean, we're a data company you probably measure this. Do you have any stats that you could talk to about what that's looked like? Um, sure. So yeah, every, um, every page on docs.splunk.com has a, a feedback form at the bottom. We get about 90 of those a week, um, which the team responds only to. about one or two of those a week. That's, I try to pace myself. Yeah. And, and we appreciate you because <laughs> you write, you write really high quality feedback. So both of you actually, um, anyway, I like uh, to just say this sucks and provide no constructive <laughs> or specific detail. Right. So anyway, we get about 90 of these a week. And if, if people leave contact information and there's an actual question or suggestion there, we always, we always follow up directly. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking back, you're thinking about data. I'm trying to think what the trends have been. Like how much how much has that grown? I will um, say while you while you think of that, yeah. That when I was a customer, I was like I almost fell out of my chair when I got the first time I gave feedback and I was like, Oh, this is probably just gonna go into the ether, who cares? Mm-hmm. And like the within the twenty four hours, I don't it was shocking. It was like maybe within an hour or something, someone sent me a personal email back. Like, oh, thanks for your feedback. You know, good point about X, Y, and Z. And I just remember that was another one of those points where I was like, this is a different company. Yeah. 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 And it's not, it's not just, oh, thanks for your feedback. Thanks for your feedback. I wrote that. Yeah. (laughs) And I want to take your suggestion or answer your question and like make it better. Right. Splunk docs are, are, you know, they're, they're, they're only as good as our community helps us make them. Um. Were there chapters or sections or books in the docs website that wouldn't exist except for some of these feedback? Ooh. Oh yeah. Um, I've got so one there's on, lots on top of my head, parts. but I want to see what you say. Yeah. Well, there are lots of, there, there are lots of parts of the docs um, in the, in the search reference, in the dashboards documentation that where, where customers have really, um, given us a lot of examples or asked questions that led to really specific examples. Um, There's uh, one entire manual that exists because a customer came up and suggested it. So a few years back at the user conference, um, we, it, 
uh, we had several people come up that year and say something uh, that was new. And this is an interesting marker in the growth of Splunk and its customer base. People came up and said, hey, so I'm taking over a Splunk deployment at my company. Uh, whereas before that, like everybody who's using Splunk was the person who started Splunk at their company. But like mm -hmm. a few years back, we started hearing like, oh, it already exists. Someone's moved on. Someone's gotten reassigned. I'm taking over this thing. And I'm not really sure where to start with the documentation and what I should look at first. Mm -hmm. Like I'm doing this next month, basically. Uh, or I started two weeks ago and I've been taking classes, but I don't really know what to do. So we actually uh, came back and um, about seven or eight different writers collaborated and we got a lot of information from professional services and, and some other sources in the company. And we made this manual um, called in, uh, Inherit, Inherit a Splunk Deployment. And that's really meant to be the, the entry point for people who are taking over a Splunk deployment, but it's turned out to be really useful for people who are starting mm -hmm. uh, with it as well. Um, there's yeah, also I really appreciate that one. That's, yeah. Uh, I've, I've enabled some customers uh, many times with that particular chapter. Yeah. So that one came directly from a customer question and, and I really loved that project. Um, we've also had, uh, I'm trying to think on, on the app side also with um, enterprise security and ITSI and UBA, there's been a lot of uh, customer feedback that's really reshaped the way we talk about um, the use cases that underlie those solutions, as well as the process of getting data in to use with, with those types of solutions. Now, each of those has a different uh, persona, perhaps. Um, do you write differently for the different products? Because, I mean, compare it to the developer portal mm -hmm. and right. the, uh, the regular product docs. Those are much different in style. Uh, or maybe style is the wrong word. So, uh, yeah, tell, tell us about that development. We, we ask different types of questions. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, when so style, it depends what you mean by style. But Yeah, I, but, I actually don't like the use of word style there. Right. That is, but we, we ask different kinds of questions. Out of style. Yeah, and, and this goes back to kind of those audience definitions that I was talking about, because yeah, truly there's there's the Splunk, you know, kind of the classic on-premises Splunk administrator, mm -hmm. maybe our original customer. Uh, they uh, That person also comes in, in varying levels of experience. Uh, there's our customers who are really just doing search and reporting. Um, there are developers, there uh, are the kind of subsection of administrators or in some companies, maybe a special role that that's really kind of managing the, the managing the content in the deployment. So it's like what we think of as the knowledge manager. Knowledge manager. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you get vertical specialization as well. You got your security operations center person, your network operations center, like, so your DevOps persona is different again. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the solutions, the apps and solutions um, where they are aimed at addressing a, a specific audience, possibly in a specific vertical domain, we, um, we try to really emphasize the, the use case and, and the solution part of that app for people so that they can, they can proceed to, to get the value out of this software that they bought for a specific purpose. Okay. So I want to go back to, and did you have something? Bert? Well, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I'm not sure if maybe this was effectively answered in, in the last part, but um, I've been thinking, I've been picturing docs. Oh, oh side, sidebar for a second. Yeah. I, I have another podcast and um, sometimes I have been known to space out during it and, and, or, or my, my co-host, and we would ask questions that the other person had just basically gotten an answer from the guest. So I just want to let you know, it's okay. It happens, you know? So, so you, just, you tell just, me and I will have no shame, but, um, what is, how would you describe or the differentiation between, um, what we now have for dev.spunk.com versus what I keep picturing through our conversation of, of docs.spunk.com? Um, 
So like the, the difference in the content. Yeah. Like yeah. What, are, what are the, if I'm a, how about this? If I'm, you know, relatively new to Splunk and oh, I see these two, two sites, what, what's the difference? They, they both seem to have documentation. In, indeed they do. Uh, <laughs> so the dev.splunk.com is really aimed at developers. So it, its purpose is to um, provide a separate site with the content that developers need, whether they're um, like partner developers or in-house developers uh, to, to build Splunk apps and extend the capabilities of the platform. And uh, the content there really focuses on um, helping people, helping people build up the knowledge that they need to use the SDKs and, and the frameworks that, that we've delivered. So there's, uh, it, as you would see on an, any developer site, it's, it's very example rich. Um, we want to give people kind of cumulative code samples that, that help them, help them, uh, build, build up this necessary knowledge and then all the deep reference material that they need once they really start working. So from a, like delivering a, a product whereby the product is docs, um, is it like like what goes into that that type of decision? And and I I don't know if maybe it was something you inherited, but I, I know we recently refreshed dev.spunk.com. Is the idea like how was saying like is it persona based or is it like you know we want to have a different set of content patterns uh, and expectations of the content? Like how do you, how, where how do you as, as someone arc architecting this. How, how long yeah, have we been talking about that refresh, by the way, Chris? <laughs> uh, 2014? 15? Somewhere in there. I'm yeah, glad well, it happened. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And and we're and we're continu- and we're continuing to 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 build that out. I mean, we 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 relaunched it last fall and and there's there's a ton more work that that we want to do and that and that we're we're actively doing there, both on the, the engineering side and the content side. Um, so this, I think this, this year is actually, um, going to be a year where we, where we are really able to, to push that, uh, the capabilities of that site and the content itself forward quite a bit, uh, you know, Birch to your question, uh, it is a different persona and, um, there are, you know, the, the, the information challenge there is that there, there's, there's actually a lot of interdependency. If, if you're really, if you're really building an app for Splunk, um, there's a lot of, of interdependency um, with the content on docs.splunk.com and the content on dev.splunk.com. But dev.splunk.com gives us a, a separate place to talk about um, what, what is a Splunk app, what goes into it, um, what are the types of things that you need to concentrate on, uh, particularly for our newer our newer offerings, it gives us a place to describe all the endpoints to the services uh, that you would need to, that you might need to call um, in, in the course of building your app. But, you know, you can only really build that app if you know how the underlying platform works. If you know about the search language, possibly, if you know, like how indexing works, if, if you're, if you're focused on, on that a type. search job. Right. So, you, you know, the, the, the there, there, you're always going to have to read across both sites, but, yeah. um, but at a certain point, right. You, you know, enough about the, the underpinnings of Splunk that you just want to find the information you need to, to develop your app. And that's, that's where dev.splunk.com and this, the separation of dev.splunk.com um, really helps people be more efficient. Well, it's, it's, and, and I guess that's, true with anything in the world. Like I just fabricated a metaphor, but like if I want to build a bike, I probably need to know what a bike is and how it generally works before I go get the manual on building one from scratch. Yeah. You could do it the other way. (laughs) (laughs) I I would look at that. You could. could. (laughs) Have you seen that there was a project where somebody took um, children's designs of what a, I think it was like what a, what a bicycle is or something like that, and then they built them, mm-hmm. oh, really? and it's the craziest thing where you have the the 
you know, the kind of the unbounded creativity and imagination of a child describing what a bicycle is in a visual format. It is not, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of a bearing on physics, for example. <laughs> physics are optional when you're a yeah. kid. And yeah. Uh, yeah, well, it's like, I mean, te- tech writers love the, love the video of the like dad having, um, having the kid explain to him how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and just like doing exactly what the, the kid uh, tells him to do and starting over and starting over and starting over. <laughs> So uh, yeah, I've not seen that. So share that one with me later. I will uh, sure. enjoy that. But the, so, uh, well, I was going to go somewhere related to development. Um, mm-hmm. If I may, Birch, do I have your permission? You have my blessing. Okay. Thanks. Appreciate it. So I you mentioned you earlier about um, converting over or, or kind of working with an agile development team. And I want to know kind of like what were the lessons learned? How did that work out? Uh, are there things you can't do? You know, are there assumptions that, 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 that the engineering team makes that just don't work for writing docs? I mean, I have a hard time imagining, honestly, how it works. And I've written a book, um, a technical, you know, manual. And uh, I was working with something that was a completed product at that time. <laughs> and then, and then there was a, actually it was a earlier version and then, and then new version came out and I had to change a bunch of stuff in my book. So that is what my instant thought was. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. sound like fun. Um, so the, the answer is it depends. Um, so like my, my view of doing docs in Scrum is that there are, there, there are some, um, there are some doc tasks or some types of content that are really, really well suited to Scrum. And there are some that really aren't. So for example, um, like do, doing API reference work is, is really well suited to Scrum. You work right alongside the development teams. A lot of times you can deliver you can deliver the content within the same sprint that the team has developed it. You can build automation around it to test the documentation as well as the code. Like can work really really well in in Scrum. Um, any any small chunk of documentation that's very very tightly bound to a feature is pretty straightforward to, to handle in Scrum. Um, by contrast, if you're writing an end-to-end workflow tutorial, let's say, like an introductory tutorial to ITSI, mm-hmm. like that's going to span, well, one, it's going to span the output of multiple scrum teams. <laughs> it's going to probably span multiple sprints. Uh, you might be writing it against a moving target, yeah. as, as you just uh, alluded to. And um, you can do things to structure that work into sprints. Uh, you can you can make it incremental. You can make it iterative. You can and you know dice it up into smaller chunks and and uh, distribute them across the teams that are tracking the different things. But like fundamentally, it really doesn't work that well because what you're trying to get to at the end is this like coherent longitudinal piece of content. And so for those, I say, like, we shouldn't actually, mm-hmm. we shouldn't try to do that in Scrum. So I think you should use Scrum for what it's good for. Scrum wasn't made for docs. Mm-hmm. It was made for code. So where we can usefully do it, it adds a lot of value. And where it's really a struggle, I think it, it, it causes more work than it benefits us. Mm-hmm. So tell me about the interaction between uh, the docs team and other parts of the company, um, I'm mm-hmm. thinking support, engineering, uh, the field, you know, uh, customers you've mentioned already. What about other internal stakeholders? Sure, absolutely. So within the products organization, the writers are um, embedded with scrum teams and by, by default. Um, so they're working daily. They are working directly with product management, engineering, and design. Mm-hmm. Um, our UX team, and uh, they are they're they're following the sprint cycle. Uh, they're gathering a lot of information. If their work is suitable to Scrum, they are producing content alongside this, the sprint cycle. So they're really right inside product development. Um, at the same time that they're doing that, remember they're getting customer feedback, right? Coming in, 
uh, on a regular basis. And so they're spending some of their time working on improving existing content in response to customer feedback, as well as working on what's currently under new development. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things I always say about the, the tech writers at Splunk is it's really important that we are uh, using the customer knowledge that we've gained to help shape the product that, that the company's developing not just write about it after it's done. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that the writers are involved throughout the development process because they're bringing this perspective from the customer as well as um, capturing information and adding UI text and docs along the way. Mm -hmm. Going out to the next kind of the next circle from, from products uh, we have a, we have extensive relationships with sales engineers, professional services, and customer support. When I joined the company, Docs was part of customer support. So the first couple of years I was here, we were actually inside the support organization, not the products organization. Mm-hmm. And we tried really hard to maintain that close tie, uh, not only because support engineers are hearing about things that aren't working for customers. Uh, support engineers also make great reviewers. Uh, of draft content, um, but it's an, it's another place where we can we can maintain and emphasize that closeness to our customers that I think is really what helps us be successful. And professional services and sales engineers similarly, um, you know, they're they're the ones who are on the front lines who are really hearing about what customers are trying to do with the product, uh, like they. They, they bought it for a reason. They have an idea of what they're trying to do. And like, that's where sales engineering professional services sit. So for us inside products, it's really useful to, um, to gather information from sales engineers and PS because they know what the use cases are that, that customers are really trying to fulfill with our software. And to the extent that we can align docs with that, I think it it serves all customers better. Um, customer education is is another group that that we work with really closely because they're they are often developing their course materials uh, closely following what on the calendar closely following what what we've been doing in in docs, mm-hmm. um, and they also make really great reviewers. Makes sense. It's like anyone who has to sit and critically think about the docs material as part of their job becomes a, a, a key stakeholder, a key reviewer for you, because you think about education, I'm sure that they're looking at, okay, well, what's documented? How am I going to summarize this in what I present in the course creation? And, you know, and through that critical thinking, they make it. And then same with support customer asks about some feature. You might go, Oh, what did we have in the docs about that? And you read through it and you, Hey, maybe, maybe there's an opportunity for misinterpretation here, or mm-hmm. I know something because I know the product well that we should enhance, add to this. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's exactly right. And customer education, like they're turning around and making labs. Right. Out of, like, we, we, don't, we don't make labs. Right? Mm-hmm. Doc team, the doc team documents the, the, the software. So they, they have to, they have to turn around and make not only instructional material to present to the class, but also labs for people to work through. Um, and, you know, we, we are one of the sources where they can find out what's actually changing in the product or what's been added or in a new product, how, how fundamentally how it's going to work. You know, that, that, um, that allude, that reminded me of something I'm really, I, I really love about the way we do docs at Splunk. Um, two particular things. One, I think, I don't know if it's still the case, but everyone who works here can technically edit, even though it we, we don't necessarily want large edits done. Um, I don't know if that's I think still, still the case. Yeah, wide open, right? It, it, is, still, it is still the case. Um, as long as we are in this MediaWiki-based platform, all employees have permission to edit the docs. They can't create new things. They can't make new pages. They can't change the organization of, of a manual, for example. But if if there's a, an editorial change or, or a typo or like a default value is wrong or something like that, um, yeah, any employee can uh, actually go and edit that. And the other thing that I think is really nifty is 
the um, ability to see unreleased documentation. So when a new version or a new product is coming out, um, as other people in the company might be producing supporting material on that, like education producing you know, new education material for an unreleased or a new version of a product, they, they don't have to put a burden on the, the writer Oh, can I have your latest draft of X, Y, and Z? They can, mm-hmm. they can actually sign in. It's there yeah. and see. Just like we have the version drop down, we can see. Oh, here's what what's changing in the new release. That's okay. Great. Yeah, that's right. There's no, there's no staging server that you would need separate permissions to go take a look at at something that that was underway. It's uh, there's just an unreleased version, and if you're an employee, you can see it. Yeah, and field enablement and support enablement and all the other groups we've talked about uh, definitely make use of that. I, I feel so like it really of the, the the open value. We have five values at, at Splunk, and that to me screams of open. Go ahead, Hal. So speaking of the version dropdown, you kind of can you kind of tell us how that works and and what happens when a new version of one of our products um, is you know is planned? What does the doc team do to get ready mm-hmm. for that? Sure. So if you're on docs.splunk.com. And you're looking at the documentation for any specific product. There's a there's a version selector. Uh, by default, it will take you to the latest released version of that software. But if you want to go back and look at an earlier version, it's available to you there. Um, so, and as we just said, when there's a new version coming out, even before it's released and visible to the public, we have the unreleased version available internally. So when we're making the, the next version of, of a, when we're planning the next version of, of something, the first thing we do is we create that new version in our doc system, and then we inherit all of the current version's content to that, that new unreleased version. And then we modify whatever pages or entire manuals that we need uh, by essentially creating branches uh, of that content for the new version. So if a topic has not changed at all from Splunk Enterprise 8.0.2 to 8.0.3, um, then we, we, don't, we don't change that topic. And if you're looking at it in 802, 802 or 803, you're actually looking at the exact same topic mm-hmm. because it's just been inherited down and, and it's the same page. And then if we change it, we branch and then we work on the new branched mm-hmm. content. And then also our, um, I, I always am impressed, is it our, our release notes and known issues are, are actually like dynamically pulling for that version against bugs and stuff that are tagged or labeled. I didn't used to, how old is that? That's not extremely old, is it? A couple years? Three or four. Okay, well, we be here, be here long enough and that's not a long time. Yeah, exactly. But but Birch is right. Yeah, the 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 known issues and fixed issues lists in the documentation are um, pulled automatically from Jira from the tickets that are are you know flagged to be included in release notes, mm-hmm. and that updates every fifteen minutes. Yeah, I love that. Um, it's it turns into something that is comprehensive, um, and and the type of person that is you know trying to solve a problem themselves and they need to have this specific information, they always know where the answer is. You know, was there some bug related to this in version 802 that was fixed or 803? I know exactly where to go to find that answer every single time. I used to do that. Consistent. Oh yeah. Every, every new version of enterprise, I would review the release notes. I I would keep a, a list. Uh, so I would open a support ticket. I'd have a bug. They say, yeah, it's, it's a known issue. Here's a bug number. It is now showing up on the uh, known issues page. Mm-hmm. And by, but it was a really cool way of empowering me as a customer because they would say, keep, keep and remember the, uh, the ID number of that one and return here when we have a new release to see if it got fixed, if it's still on that list or not. And sure enough, I would have like a spreadsheet or whatever of, of all the IDs and I'd go and check on a new, oh, yay, they fixed it. So, yeah, no, it's super cool. Um, did you, going, circling kind of all the way back just on the history part, when you first joined, were you reporting to Rachel? No, I reported to the head of customer support, Lena okay. Hartman. Lena, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, Rachel, it, it's... Uh, 
she had moved out of the the documentation team at that point. Yeah, she 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 essentially she and Lionel hired me so that she could focus on community full time. Oh, cool. And uh, and so you've been the head of that group since that time. Yes, the, the head of the docs group. Okay. And so we also talked about, I feel like when we talked about the book, I'm kind of doing loose ends here, but when we talked about the book, we, I think focused a lot on like how we got there and everything, but the big recent news is the release of the second edition of it. So I know something you and I have talked about, but like, um, what are the known issues and what's new in these, this release? So sure, uh, we did. We did go back through a lot of the content just because because we were doing a second edition. We did like go back through and and um, uh, like streamline some of the chapters and expand some of the chapters where where we felt like we left something out. So um, throughout the book, there are there are small changes, um, and I don't know medium sized changes. Like we we reorganized the chapter on learning objectives, which is really kind of one of the fundamental ways that we think about and plan content. And um, we've gotten feedback from the like broader tech writing community that they, they found the chapter useful and also hard to use. So, um, so we, we reorganized There's that. something there, but I'm not quite getting it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, we added some, there's a chapter in there about uh, essentially about managing teams. Um, we added some information there about uh, about hiring diverse teams. Uh, just kind of, there are just some oversights uh, really that we wanted to correct. And then we added uh, a handful of new chapters. Um, the 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 latter part of the book is a, a series of chapters called like working with engineering, working with marketing, working with oh. UX and, and so on. We, we, we didn't have one on working with the field, um, which like given the conversation the three of us have been having, was, you know, edition of, three, kind of an oversight. So, so we added a chapter on um, uh, working with the field. We added a chapter on organizing temporary teams. Um, there's a new chapter about writing for the cloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that chapter the first chapter? <laughs> we have a joke uh, yeah. for our, our listeners. Uh, we, we as a company are, are cloud first. So the joke uh, being, did that chapter come first? No, it, it, it doesn't come first because the chapters are alphabetical. Ah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but so that, that chapter actually talks about um, two aspects of writing for cloud, which are really important for us. One is documenting SaaS products for customers. And the other is about writing, writing for a cloud ops team, uh, which we also do. Um, so the, the cloud chapter covers uh, both of those. Uh, so anyway, so there, there are a handful of new chapters and some substantial revisions to some existing chapters and then just some overall improvements. Um, I also, uh, this time, um, I had one of the technical editors on my team actually professionally edit the entire thing end to end um, because the first edition, I I did that myself and you know, they're, they're better at it than I am. So I'm uh, a better editor than a writer. Like I I found that out while writing mm -hmm. my book that there's two different skills. And if you leave the editing to the editor, then you can write. If you do the editing yourself, then you, you end up not writing. And, And, the f- yeah. what came out of my head was very slow in pace. It was perfect feeling to me once I got it down, but doing that editing at the same time actually hampers cre- creation. Before yep. I can get the first word written uh, when I'm writing any, even a blog post, I, I start doubting and editing myself and I can't start. Uh, it's a real problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, going back to the hack week, this is why the goal was messy, rough draft. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like so for the, on, on the messy, the hack week really culminated or, or catalyzed the first edition. Was there a similar catalyst for the second? Um, no, actually. Um, I mean, I've been collecting 
thoughts and ideas. And, and I'd been wanting to do a second edition for a while. And then uh, basically last fall, I just put it to the team. Like we didn't have a hack week. We didn't have a specific event or period of time that we could organize around. But I, I just said to the team, like, Hey team, um, here are my ideas. Let's do this thing. Uh, the I team think that had other, right? yeah, the team had other ideas. Um, and you know, we, we went through a similar process, but not uh, kind of focused in, in a, in a week long hack session the way we did the first time. I, I feel like that makes it, uh, even more impressive because when you don't have an event to trigger it, you can always, oh yeah, we'll get to it later. We'll get to it mm-hmm, later. Mm-hmm. Did, uh, call that a forcing did, function. Yeah. Ah, forcing function. Yeah. I know about those from my fandom in Star Wars. There's a lot of forcing functions that they use. Hmm. So um, did... That's a little uh, dark, Birch. <laughs> really? <laughs> I thought it was light. Um, it depends what side you're on. So did... Um, I mean, you're also very plugged in in the community. You're an honorary uh, Fez, uh, an honorary Splunk Trust uh, member as of... Um, was it just this past year or the year before? Uh, no, conf last fall. Last fall. Yeah. So now is the muscle. is the committee secret? Can we talk about the committee? Uh, I don't think it meant. I don't, I don't know if it came up when we had Jason on the show or not. It did. Uh, so, think, are you asking about how Splunk Trust members um, are chosen? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Sure. Um, Jason didn't talk about this. I, maybe we did. I, think, I don't remember. Yeah, I thought he so, did. And we probably used the word hammer fight on the hammer podcast. Fight. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Let's review. But so, um, uh, people can nominate other people to join this, to to be Splunk Trust members. This happens every year. People can nominate other people. You can, people can nominate themselves. Then the current Splunk Trust membership, um, basically uh, reviews those nominations. And and um, and and does does the selection? Um, then Which is the hammer fight part. Uh, there there's some information the gathering first. Different. Yeah, people, like you know, people basically review the nominee. Each each Splunk Trust member reviews the nominees and kind of does their their like yes no in out ranking kind of thing. And then the hammer fight is is where the uh, all the the kind of borderline like final draft. cases um, end up. It's it's really it's like the exception review process. Yeah, yeah. The ones that weren't clear answers. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, I was uh, where I was going with that is um, I mean you're very active in the community. Did you use any aspect of your uh, inherent community love and and your behavior and involvement in the community? Did you use any of that to influence the second edition? like book clubs or anything? Well, so we, there's a few different answers to that question, right? So we, we talk about community and working with the community in the book. We've like expanded some of that material as well this time. Um, we, on the doc team, we, you said book club on the doc team, we do have a book club that where we just read, uh, um, like optionally, there's a, there's a group of us that every month or two gets together to talk about uh, a book that we're reading. Oh, nice! So, like, we're, um, right now we're we're reading um, Invisible Women, which is about uh, the the absence of women in data. Oh, wow! Um, it's a really interesting book. Anyway, um, there is there are professional communities out there of tech writers. Uh, so one of the really big ones is called write the docs. And, uh, this was like the kind of the, the, the happiest and most coincident thing that happened with the second edition was, uh, basically after the writers had done their draft chapters and I had just taken them and was starting to review them and think about like what overall changes did I want to make in this, in the second edition, uh, I was in the write the docs community slack. And there's a channel in there called Learn Tech Writing. And on January 1st, two people in Learn Tech Writing said, um, hey, I think it would be really cool in this channel if we uh, basically did an online book club. 
So let's just try it. And the first book we're going to read is The Product is Docs. And we're going to read one chapter every day for the month of January. And we're going to talk about it in here. Wow. Uh, so like throughout the month of January, like every day they were discussing another chapter in, in the first edition. And like we gathered so much, um, so much great feedback and so many suggestions and, and things that we just might not otherwise have thought of. And it was really exciting to mm-hmm. just watch this, this amazing discussion unfold. And, um, I, so I, I lurked all month. I didn't, I didn't identify myself early on and just... I went ah. back and forth about what to do, you know. <laughs> Once, yeah, you can't you can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. I know. So it it it, it felt a little questionable not to, but it also felt like the conversation would be much better if I wasn't in it at all. Yeah, if people so, knew that you were there, it, it changes how people say things. Yeah, so they, they, they still kind of tease me. Yeah, hey, Chris, this. why did you do yeah. this thing right. or whatever? So so at the end, I was like. You know, y'all are amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I take, we're, we're working on a second edition. Like, we're going to incorporate as many of your suggestions as you can. Like, this has been fantastic. And people were kind of like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they still say, like, now that they're talking about other books, they're like, you never know the, who's listening. Yeah. But, um, but what's been nice also is that, you know, on into February and, and even into March, as people have, like, they're reading other books, and now they're kind of saying, oh, like, this is interesting, and the product is docs, they said this, and now we're reading this, and, like, that that sheds an interesting light on it, light on it. like, hey, C. Gales, because <laughs> now they know, right? Hey, C. Gales, like, can you talk about that? So, um, so the conversations continued now that, that I'm in it. But like we were ever so grateful to them for for like organizing this completely on their own, and we were so lucky to to stumble in it and and, and be able to to make use of of what they suggested. I, I know we're coming up on on time here, but we'd be remiss if we if we didn't point out all the incredible affluence the profits from the book have given you. Oh, <laughs> yeah, all those royalties. Yeah, um, I know. It's tough. Like we haven't been on Oprah's book club yet, but no, <laughs> the, the, the point, the point I think Birch is, is trying to get to here is that we, we donate all the royalties to, to charity. Like no, no, nobody's profiting from this, this book at all. That's really not its purpose. Its mm-hmm. purpose is to further professional discussion and the money that does come in. Uh, we've been donating to a succession of, of charities. And right now we're, we're donating the royalties a little more frequently to organizations that are directly supporting um, either healthcare workers or other aspects of, of the COVID-19 crisis. It's awesome. Is there yeah. a, uh, a version three uh, and third edition that you've started to think about? Not yet. Okay. It's a bit early. He just shipped yeah, one. Well, shipped I don't two. know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I waited a year last time before I started thinking about it. That's good. Got to see what comes up. Yeah. Well, it's incre- incredibly uh, impressive. I feel like we, you know, I said at the beginning, um, oh boy, I'd love to unpack the, you know, how you got here, what things have been like while you've been here and, and where, where are we going and in terms of, uh, you know, the book and, and uh, all of the, the current stuff going on. Um, and I, I'm impressed. I think we covered all three realms. I, th- I think we, we covered a lot. So, um, you know, any last words, call to action, go ahead and flash the book up. We, we, I want to see the cover again. The product is Docs, Ooh. second edition. Available on Amazon in Kindle and print. Um, no, they sell books. So much, thanks so much for having me. It's oh, yeah. always great to talk to, to either of you. I've never had the pleasure of talking to both of you at the same time. So I really appreciate it. Um, Deadpool was incredibly well behaved. He <laughs> was uncharacteristically so, I would say. Give, give that man a cookie. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> thanks again for having me. It's great to talk thank, to you. Thank for your you time. so much for, for coming on and, and sharing all of that history and uh, lifting the hood on, on Splunk and Splunk documentation. So thank Anytime. you. Anytime. All right. Take care, Chris. Bye. Bye. Bye.